This is an ABC podcast. Surveillance in the 21st century has become mainstream. It's now so ubiquitous that many of us no longer notice its intrusion in our daily lives. But not all forms of monitoring are designed to exploit and or contain. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Welcome to Future Tense. In this episode, we'll look at several interesting monitoring technologies created to assist and to heal. And we're going to start in South Australia with this man. I'm Javan Chal. I'm Chair of Census Systems at the University of South Australia. Professor Chal and his team have developed a form of facial recognition technology for newborn babies. It's about being hands-off while trying to keep them alive. So the reason that we developed the system was to allow monitoring, essentially replacing an electrocardiogram. So the machines that we're all used to seeing in hospitals forever, is there a better way to do it? And a camera would be a better way because you don't have to make contact. So that's why we did it. And the challenge was that babies, especially newborn babies, are not seen much in public. And therefore, neural networks that uh, commonly exist for detecting things don't have the ability to recognise them. So we had to make neural networks that would learn what babies look like. And you're looking for changes in the colour of the baby's skin, is that correct? That's what allows you to see the heart. So all of us... When our hearts beat, there's a blood pressure pulse that moves through the face and that can be detected. It's very subtle, too subtle to see. Although now that I work in the area and I focus really hard on pale skinned people, I have actually started to be able to see their heart rate. But usually we're not aware of it. And what are the benefits of this approach as opposed to the traditional approach where you use electrical sensors that are you know, taped onto the skin? Well, I thought that those things were perfect. When we started this project, I thought that it was just mildly inconvenient that they had to be connected. But it turns out they're not very reliable. They respond to uh, movements of the subject. So they don't always work. But to make it worse, they have little adhesive pads on them. And even here, that's a problem because if you repeatedly take the pads on and off, very fragile skin, such as on newborns, it can peel the skin off. And then we heard more stories from developing countries. They reuse the uh, electrodes So they actually move them from one child to the next. And so now you've got this thing that's a vector for infections to move around a ward. So there's actually a lot of limitations once you start touching things and sticking things on and taking them off. And of course, we're also in a pandemic at the moment. So being able to keep distance is an important thing as well. Exactly. Now, so far, the younger parts of the population have been spared most of the worst of COVID, but we don't know that that will continue forever. There's going to be changes to the virus. Non-contact is certainly a good thing to work on at the moment across everywhere where we're touching things. It's worth asking, can we do it without touching? How accurate is this monitoring technology, particularly given that in hospital situations when we're talking about neonatal care, uh, babies have all sorts of devices strapped up to them, you know, there's lighting that could interfere. How accurate is your technology? So when we started the study, we knew that it was accurate if you isolate a patch of the baby's face, hold it stable and run the algorithm for extracting the heart rate, that you could measure it very reliably. But that's not the real setting. The real setting is a baby in a cot or an incubator 
surrounded by bedclothes and possibly wearing a little hat with a mask on its face and maybe it's, its eyes covered as well because it's having phototherapy, the blue light for treating jaundice. Well, that's a much more difficult problem. And so that's the complexity that makes it such a hard issue to resolve. And it was quite surprising that the neural network was able to cope with that very difficult situation. And what other possible applications do you see for this technology outside of neonatal? Yeah, I see it in hospitals replacing normal instrumentation. I think that ECGs could become quite specialised and that standard monitoring might be done with cameras just because there's a lot more things you can do with a camera once you have it. Like you can monitor them for more than just their heart rate. So I could see it taking over there. I could see that you might want to use it for screening. So if you want to see if a person who's presenting in front of you what their physiological state is, that, that this sort of technology is useful for that. So there's a lot of possibilities. Are there potential privacy concerns? There are big privacy concerns. A lot of it comes down to who designs the instrument and what their intentions are. So if they design the instrument to have a lot of connectivity and to send people's faces and records to somewhere else, that's really bad and could potentially lead to some trouble. But if you choose to design the instrument properly, then it can't export that sort of private and sensitive information and it just decides to be a useful machine that's benevolent. So it's a choice. Professor Javan Chal, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much, Anthony. From one end of life to the other, and the peculiar characteristics of the way individuals walk. Dr Patricia Scully from the National University of Ireland in Galway. I think everybody knows that if you hear a member of the family walking around upstairs, you can identify who that person is. So people's gait is personal to them. It can be affected by their musculoskeletal condition or health conditions and their weight and things like that. So individuals can be identified from the way in which they walk. And the work that we've been doing so far has used machine learning and computer algorithms to detect that. We found out that we could distinguish old people from young people and males from females. And for one individual, we could identify different types of walking and we could also distinguish different individuals. So we did experiments with that and generated papers showing the signal analysis. Now, the monitoring works via an array of sensors woven into the floor covering of an elderly person's house or perhaps a nursing home. But Dr Scully and her team are still working on perfecting the technology. Well, at the moment, the mats that we bake out of optical fibres are handmade. We have to lay them out and insert the fibres in between the carpet layers. So the mats are based on carpet underlay and the smart carpet material looks just like a normal carpet. When we showed it at exhibitions, people were just walking on it as normal. They didn't even twig that it was something special or different. So we need a way of manufacturing structure into the material. So what I'm looking at now is a laser-induced way of writing sensitised structures into polymers so that it can be done on a rel-to-rel basis. So if we're manufacturing like composites or flooring material, we can have a laser writing the structures into the material. So we're going from optical fibres to electronic sensing structures that we're writing with the laser. But the important thing is that we can layer the sensing tracks exactly where we want them. What would you say are the the major benefits of taking this approach, particularly, say, in the the health realm? Well, you're doing quite simple measurements of 
help somebody walks, you're not clipping any structure or device onto them. So an elderly person doesn't have to clip something onto them or wear it each day and remember to switch it on and deal with batteries that might be discharged. Because I had an elderly mother and I know how difficult it was when she had a device around her neck that sensed if she moved suddenly or like sat down heavily on a chair and used to create alerts and she got so frustrated with it she used to switch it off or even throw it across the room because it was always beeping so people do that they just switch the technology off so if this is in the carpet then first of all the person isn't being disturbed by it all the time and the data is being taken sort of 24 7 and they can be analyzed in different ways So you can set up an alert to see if somebody falls or becomes motionless um, or doesn't get out of bed and go to the toilet and switch the kettle on and do the normal things at the normal time of day. And you can also use that data, download it and analyse in a different way and compare it with data taken in um, days and weeks before to see how somebody declines or if somebody's improving without that person having to switch anything on or interact with anything. So we call that ambient sensing, where the sensing is done by the structure and not by the person having to remember to switch it on. The main thing is like getting somebody to manufacture it for us. And if we're going to use it for health applications, getting it through patient trials or clinical trials. But I've just managed to get a grant from the Irish government that might enable me to explore some of these things. Patricia Scully at the National University of Ireland. And the technology also has the potential to be used for security, monitoring areas with restricted access, for example. Now, in the United States, at the University of California, Santa Barbara, researchers are also interested in developing non-visual forms of tracking. In the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering, their focus has been on using Wi-Fi to penetrate walls and count the number of people sitting in a room. And as Professor Yasemin Mustafi explains, it's all about the little micro-movements that people make, all that fidgeting and twitching. Basically, our first observation was that while people are seated, people are not sitting still for a long period of time. And we all engage in these natural in-place body motions, which we like to call natural fidgets. For instance, we often change our seating positions. We cross around, cross our legs and stretch and check our phones and so on. So what we've shown is that the aggregate collective natural fidgets of a crowd carries crucial information on the crowd count. The aggregate collective fidget process of the crowd is actually what the Wi-Fi signal can measure. So for instance, the Wi-Fi link nearby can detect the time periods when no one is fidgeting and the time periods when at least one person is fidgeting. So the main challenge for us was to show that there is a relationship between this crowd process and the total number of people. And so that was the main challenge we were facing. Are they related and can we count the total number of people from the crowd fidgeting process? And this process uses just standard Wi-Fi, doesn't it? Absolutely. This is just standard Wi-Fi. In our experiments, basically, we have two laptops. One acts as a transmitter. The Wi-Fi card on one acts as a transmitter and the other one acts as a receiver. And that is that. And just like the gate or step monitoring being developed in Ireland, this wall-penetrating Wi-Fi is intended to help surveil the health of the elderly in a less intrusive way. 
less intrusive than, say, sticking cameras all over someone's house to monitor how they're getting on. Yasmin Mustafi again. It's a question with every technology, right, that we have to ensure as scientists and as a society that it is not misused. And this technology is is no exception. It it is interesting because in searching applications, actually using Wi-Fi for inferring about the environment, let's say as compared to cameras, would actually preserve privacy, right, if you're using it for crowd count. So it, it actually could preserve privacy. But of course, we have to always be careful that any technology we develop is not misused. But I've so far seen so many positive applications for this technology, basically, that I'm hopeful. You're with Future Tense on RN, ABC Radio National, exploring the world around us, looking for the pathways ahead and signposting the future. And on today's show, we're showcasing an array of emerging technologies that should help remind us that not all forms of surveillance and monitoring are about trying to sell people things or impinge on their freedoms. I want to go to cars next, because for several years now, researchers at various institutions and companies have been experimenting with devices that monitor the performance of the driver, not just the car using what's called emotion detection. It's an area of particular interest for Andrew McStay, a professor of digital life at Bangor University in the UK. Most of the major car makers have plans or initiatives in this area. It's a particularly interesting example of emotion sensing technologies because of the degree of policy backing it has. So certainly kind of in the US and definitely in Europe, there's a big push to reduce road death. It's what in Europe called the Vision Zero initiative. And I think because of that kind of Vision Zero initiative that seeks to reduce road death to zero, they're looking at all possible ways of doing that. And a key part of that is the use of in-cabin analytics, which senses human states in some way, shape or form. In addition to cameras, there are also potentially other modalities as well, using things such as the steering wheel, using other touch points in the cabin as a means of kind of gauging factors such as heart rate, measuring kind of electric conductivity of the skin, again, as a means of sensing human stage, such as anxiety, increased heart rate and that kind of thing. So is the idea that if you were, say, very tired and you started to fall asleep, that the the car would be able to sense that and then warn you that this could possibly occur? Is that the idea? Yeah, precisely. So, you know, so kind of picture yourself on a kind of relatively long drive, potentially back from the airport, you know, quite late at night or after an overnight flight. So you could kind of feel yourself getting sleepy and maybe even kind of the eyes drop once or twice. In addition to a warning, there could be a change in the ambient conditions of the cabin. So it could be, for example, a decrease in temperature. So rather than the car being warm, it could cool down. But, you know, it could be something more serious. It might not even be just a warning there may be kind of a level of automation involved as well, where the car would actually kind of pull over at the nearest possible point and lock up. So in addition to kind of traditional cars, where kind of um, the driver is kind of fully in control, there may be kind of semi-autonomous capabilities as well. As you said, this is emergent technology. Are there, though, any baseline standards in the car industry for this kind of cabin sensing of human behaviour? That's a really interesting question. 
In terms of the issue of baseline standards, that's really a concern that kind of dogs the wider emotion stroke affect sensing industry in that there is kind of a lack of baseline thresholds and standards. No, there are kind of safety groups who are kind of very much interested in establishing these standards, and that would work in relation to standards groups, possibly universities as well, and industry as well. But as it stands at the moment, no, there are no kind of baseline thresholds. You know, and perhaps kind of part of the reason for that is because people, of course, do differ. People have kind of slightly different physiologies. People react in different ways. And certainly when it comes to kind of the issue of emotion expression, people express in different ways, lots of kind of different cultural variables in that regard. So the issue of kind of baseline and thresholds is a really, really problematic one. From your research, you believe that there are high-level societal risks involved in the development of this kind of technology. Just explain what those risks are as you see them. I think it's really interesting that we started with cars. So I think when it comes to safety-based issues, I think this is possibly one of kind of the, the stronger arguments, one of the areas where I think all of us might think, well, hang on, you know, if that data isn't leaving the car, so if data isn't going to municipal authorities, it's not going to insurance companies, and it's not going directly to police authorities, then, you know, if it's just staying in the car and it's simply a means of kind of sensing, not recording, and alerting the driver, then I think there are arguments to be made there. And it's certainly kind of one that I'm open to. But I think, you know, it's maybe when we think about the use of emotion sensing in different contexts beyond cars, such as, for example, in relation to the classroom, the workplace, advertising technologies, and so on and so forth, I think the argument becomes weaker. Take the workplace as an example. So although at present, so far, we've been talking about computer vision in terms of assessing kind of issues such as fatigue and assessing emotion expression. But voice is another modality of kind of tracking kind of human affect and human emotion expression. So in telesales, for example, these technologies are routine. And so the idea is that you kind of measure the ups and downs of voice as a means of gauging emotion expression, engagement, liveliness, all things that you would need as a telesales worker to persuade or inform potential customer. So the, this idea of kind of tracking emotion in workplaces is, yeah, it's kind of something that A, exists already. And I think as well, given what we've all just been through over the last year and a half, two years in relation to the COVID-19 pandemic, we're all using Zoom, Teams and so on. So the idea of kind of embedding kind of visual-based analytics in these contexts as a means of enhancing engagement and interaction, it's not only possible, it seems kind of highly likely. And yet we know that many people find it difficult, say, in Zoom conferences to express emotion or they worry that their performance, if you like, mediated via a screen could be misinterpreted. It's an issue, isn't it? So misinterpretation is an issue. But I think as well, you know, perhaps the, it's a slightly more subtle point, but I think it's possibly the more important point, is kind of how people would begin to live up to what the algorithm prescribes. So if they're kind of a basic set of emotions that a system would recognize, to what extent would people try to live up to and gamify that? So already in telesales, for example, your call workers are already doing that. 
that the system valorizes and rewards particular types of expression, particular types of emotion, particular ways of kind of articulating. So workers already kind of live up to those algorithms. And I think, you know, in terms of, you know, kind of taking that kind of case and issue elsewhere, the issue of prescription, I think this issue of prescribed emotion, this issue of prescribed behavior, it's a subtle point, but I think it's one that could become socially quite prevalent as people learn to live up to and game the algorithms. As you said, this has already been used in telemarketing. Uh, we were talking earlier about the car industry. How difficult would it be to effectively regulate this kind of technology, to put in place checks and balances, guidelines for its implementation? Already in Australia and in Europe, there are kind of data protection laws in place that govern use of biometrics, because that's what these technologies are. Anything that kind of senses kind of human states in some way, shape or form is a biometric technology. In Europe, the Commission have proposed a set of AI regulations. Emotion recognition is right at the top in Article 1. So it's kind of a sign of of how serious they're taking the emergence of these technologies. And I was a little surprised by kind of how seriously they're taking it. So I think already there's an interest in considering factors, not just biometrics, i.e. the measurement of the body, but also what that means because emotion isn't just a measurement of the body, it's kind of something, it says something about subjectivity and kind of really intimate dimensions of human life. So I think it's really good to see regulators grappling and beginning to address these issues. So yeah, I think that's something we're gonna see more of. I think when it kind of comes to regulation, to an extent where kind of Europe goes, then the rest of the world follows. And finally, to Professor Menno Prins in the Netherlands. His new biosensor technology works inside the body, in the bloodstream, and could have significant future impacts on healthcare. Menno Prins. So biomarkers are known, interesting molecules that tell something about, for example, health and disease in case of patients. We all know about sensors. We know about sensors that measure light. We know about sensors that measure sound, sensors that measure weight. But sensors that measure biomolecules are much less known. Well, we do know, for example, since COVID, that you can measure a virus in in a small sensor or people with diabetes, you know, that can measure glucose, which helps diabetic patients to administer their insulin. But those sensors measure only once. You put a sample in and then you get an answer. But the interesting thing would be to have also chemical sensors, like in the domain of sound and light and weight, sensors that measure continuously. Now, we set out to develop a sensing technology that could measure interesting biomolecules, so biomarkers, continuously. And we've developed a sensing technology based on particles. We measure the mobility of particles, and that reflects the concentration of these biomolecules in solution. And, and the unique property of our sensor is that we can continuously measure low concentrations of biomarkers in a solution. And that has very interesting applications in both the fields of healthcare as well as industrial process monitoring. So how does your technology actually work? Take us through the process. There's two types of molecules, putting it very simply. There's big molecules and there's small molecules. If you have a big molecule, what you can do is you can attach other molecules to it because the molecule is quite big. But if the molecule is very small, there's very limited area for attaching other molecules. Now, in our sensor, what we've done for measuring small molecules, we've designed a sensor that has so-called lookalikes. So this lookalike is present in the sensor 
and the particle moves. And when the molecule of interest, the small molecule coming, for example, from the patient, for example, the, the blood of the patient, when that small molecule moves into the sensor, then it starts competing with the lookalike. And that competition changes the mobility of the particles. So in a way, we have developed a sensor that can continuously measure small molecules at low concentrations by having a competition, a molecular competition inside the sensor. And when you say measure at very low concentrations, how low are we talking about? The concentration of chemical molecules can be expressed in many ways, but a very well-known way is in molar. It's in moles per liter. And for example, glucose, sugar type of molecule in the blood, has a concentration around a millimolar. But many of these other molecules have concentrations that are in the micromolar or nanomolar or picomolar. So that's 1,000, 1 million, or even 1 billion times lower in concentration than the glucose. And our sensor is suited for measuring molecules across all of those different concentrations. And to give an indication, a picomolar is like a grain of sugar in an Olympic swimming pool. That's the type of concentrations we're speaking about. And is that why you believe this is a game changer, not just an advance on previous monitoring technology? Yes, the game change of our technology is that we can continuously measure molecules, small molecules, as well as large molecules, at much, much lower concentrations than what is possible with other technologies. And what does that mean for healthcare? In healthcare, we see many interesting applications, many interesting biomarkers to measure on patients. But I think the first ones that will be implemented on this sensing technology are the monitoring of pharmaceutical drugs and the monitoring of information markers. Pharmaceutical drugs, for example, antibiotics. If a patient arrives on the intensive care and has a serious infection, then antibiotics have to be administered. But every patient is different in terms of how the body absorbs the molecules, how the the body converts the molecules and reacts to the antibiotics. And particularly in urgent situations in intensive care, you would like to give the drug immediately at the right dose, that the right concentration of molecules is present in the body of the patient. And to be able to do that, it would be really, really good to have a sensor that continuously monitors the concentration of the drug in the patient so that it can be administered, it can be dosed at the right level to get the right concentration in the blood. And the other area in the field of patient monitoring would be information monitoring. And as we know, in the field of COVID, particularly in the early phases, many patients died because of an overreaction of their inflammatory system. So the information was so strong that it would not only attack the microorganism, the virus, but it would also start attacking organs of the patient, him or herself. And then patients would die from it. It's so-called cytokine release syndrome or cytokine storm. So an overreaction of the immune system. Now, if you would have a sensor that could continuously monitor the status of the immune system, then doctors could react and could avoid that the inflammatory system would overreact and thereby kill the patient. And how do you administer one of these devices into a patient's body? In case of patient monitoring, you need to have access to a body fluid. There are many interesting body fluids where doctors would like to be able to measure. And the most well-known body fluid is blood. That's most used, it's most well characterized. So a sensor ideally would have access to blood. But in the future, also other body fluids would be very interesting. For example, perspiration, tear fluid, or urine. But let's go to blood. So if a sensor would have access continuously to blood, in case of an intensive care situation, you would do that via a catheter. Patients already have catheters, and you could use the same or similar catheters to extract small samples from the patient, feed them into a sensor, and then continuously register the biomarkers of interest. Aside from the health sector, what are the other possible applications for this technology? We see a large field of applications in industry. 
particularly in the biotechnology industry and in the food industry. In these industries, the processes rely on feedstocks, so materials that are used like cells and nutrients, and they rely often on very complex processes like fermentations or extractions, purification, separations. And these processes, they are quite difficult to manage. It's very difficult to get an optimal yield, to get an optimal purity, to get an optimal productivity. And they're all based on molecular processes in the end. So within all these applications, we see very interesting key molecules that could be monitored with continuous monitoring chemical sensor. And then the measurements, the results could be used to on the spot, change something in the process, adapt it so that optimal yield, optimal productivity and optimal purity is achieved. Professor Menno Prins in the Netherlands. We also heard today from Yasmin Mustafi, Andrew McStay, Javan Chal and Patricia Scully. My colleague and co-producer here at Future Tense is Karen Savanovitz. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time, cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.